Welcome to Follow the Data. I'm your host, Katherine Oliver. 2020 will certainly be remembered as a pivotal year in history, defined by a global pandemic which exacerbated challenges to the American public health system, exposed racial and social injustice, and characterized a tense presidential election. For this episode, the last of the year, we wanted to highlight some of the episodes which gave us a fresh perspective on the events of this year. An Everytown for Gun Safety study published this summer suggested that economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic could contribute to a 20 to 30 percent increase in firearm suicides in the U.S. this year. Sarah Bird Sharps, Everytown's director of research, joined the podcast for episode 75, The Pandemic's Effect on Gun Violence, to tell us more about how we can be mindful of possible firearm suicides and prevent them from happening. We're in this global pandemic. We know every day the number of hospitalizations, the number of positive tests, the number of deaths. Every day. We know sort of stock market gyrations every minute. But like super basic questions about gun violence, like how many guns are owned in America? Who owns them where? We have no idea. How many firearm suicides are there a year in America? We don't know that until like a couple of years later. So we are missing so much basic information necessary to understand this problem well. Now, every town recently released a report asserting that the economic and social trends caused by COVID could exacerbate the risk of firearm suicide. And that was based on a historic precedent. The U.S. risks a 20 to 30 percent increase in firearm suicides. How how did your team calculate this? So to step back a little bit, you know, gun suicide was already a public health crisis in the U.S. well before coronavirus appeared on the scene. And, you know, many people might not realize, but there's about 23 minutes between gun suicide deaths in this country on average. And so when we started seeing the huge spike in gun sales starting in March, And also coupled with this dramatic unemployment rise, I became incredibly concerned. Why? Because there are a lot of studies that look at the Great Depression back in the 30s, more recently the Great Recession that ended in 2010, and the sort of devastating impact these, you know, personal financial distress and these economic downturns had on suicides in those two historic periods. So that coupled with the fact that access to a gun in a home triples the risk of death by suicide, and you combine the two of them. Here we were sheltering in our homes, right? And you combine the two of them, and the risk is is tremendous and grave, and uh, we wanted to make sure that we put that information out there. We shut down around March 13th. When did you really start looking at the data, and, and what did you find? Exactly. So we started looking at it in March, and we used sort of the rate of working age Americans times the unemployment rates that were coming into the Department of Labor, and then the research from history that shows the relative risk of suicide within five years related to unemployment. So in an average year in the U.S. without a pandemic, there are nearly 23,000 gun suicides. That's already very high. But Based on the the research, we could see 
5,000 to 7,000 more suicides just in 2020 alone on top of what one expects regularly in a year. And that's just tragically for 2020. And, you know, it's not like we're going to flip a switch, pandemic over, boom, economy comes back again. So we expect that there'll actually be more risk moving forward into 2021 and 2022. It's not a cheerful piece. But I think the thing that's more hopeful is that it's not inevitable. These suicides are not inevitable. By sounding the alarm on this, our hope is that we will take the steps that we need as a country and as individuals to avert this crisis. Dr. Lisa Cooper, the director of the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Equity and the director of the Johns Hopkins Urban Health Institute, Join Follow the Data earlier this year to tell us more about how the public health community is tackling systemic racism and inequalities for Episode 78, Systemic Racism as a Public Health Issue. African Americans and Latinos and Native Americans as well are contracting COVID-19 at higher rates than whites across the country. And so that has to do with a number of longstanding issues we know that have contributed to health disparities. So... The first of these is that these groups tend to live in neighborhoods that have not had the social and economic investment that many other neighborhoods have had. So they tend to live in neighborhoods where they don't have access to health care. The quality of housing is much poorer. They live in more crowded conditions. They don't have the same opportunities to have gainful employment, so jobs that might provide health insurance or where they might have the luxury of working from home. So a lot of our ethnic minority communities are, you know, affected by this because many of the people living in those communities are frontline workers and uh, they were they were out there working. They got exposed to COVID-19 at much higher rates to begin with. And because of these same sort of social inequities uh, that have existed for a long time, and, you know, many people are now actually coming to grips with the fact that this is actually what we call structural racism policies and practices that have been in our society for a long time that have systematically disadvantaged uh, people of color. And if one of us is not doing well, it actually is going to impact others. Because of these same factors, um, people in in the African-American, Latino, and Native American community are at higher risk for many chronic conditions that predispose people to do worse when they get COVID-19. So things like diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, lung disease, obesity. So if you have uh, people that are, have higher rates of those chronic conditions to begin with, and then you have them getting exposed to COVID-19 at higher rates on top of that, you can see where that's a setup for higher rates of infection as well as higher rates of death. I've been looking at data across several states, and it actually shows that you know in communities where the infection rates are the highest, that's actually where we see the lowest access to testing. And so that can't continue. Uh, It doesn't make sense to have a whole bunch of testing centers in an area where a lot of people don't need it and not to have enough testing sites where we do need them. So we need better access to testing and also better access to healthcare. So some things that have been looked at, some policy changes have been related to making sure that uh, Medicaid expansion continues so that people can sign up for that healthcare so they have access to that. Making sure people know where to go for help. I think local leaders can play an important role in trying to address better care delivery to these patients, better referrals to the social resources they need, and advocating for 
policymakers who make these decisions that really impact people's lives. Many countries closed their borders and restricted non-essential travel this year as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, greatly impacting tourism and funding for cultural institutions. In episode 79, How Cities Are Supporting Arts and Culture During COVID-19, Justine Simons, deputy mayor for Culture and the Creative Industries of London and founder and chair of the World Cities Culture Forum, tells us more about how London and other cities around the world are responding to COVID-19's impact on the cultural sector. COVID-19's deep impact has been felt by the cultural sector in many ways, and it leaves us with many big questions to answer, like what will culture look like if cities reopen, how will audiences adapt, and what hidden opportunities are there for reinvention, both now and post-COVID. And in your role as Deputy Mayor for Culture in London, uh, how have you been assessing uh, the impact of COVID-19 on London's cultural sector? The impact on our cultural sector has honestly been catastrophic. I'd say the cultural sector has been hit really early on, hit first, hit hardest and hit longest, really. And we've been tracking from a data perspective, the economic impact and the jobs impact. So we had some recent statistics in last week that indicated that the creative economy will lose £16 billion by the end of the year. And we're looking at losing 150,000 jobs in the creative sector and then a further 84,000 jobs in the supply chain. So that's, you know, all the carpenters, the prop makers, everyone else who supports the uh, the process of creative production. So, you know, it's quite a serious situation for us in London. Um, I think added to that, it's, you know, the, the impact of COVID on, on tourism is also having an impact on us because four out of five tourists come to London for culture. Um, and because international travel has collapsed, again, that's a kind of a double whammy in a way because cultural tourism is worth something like eight billion pounds a year to the London economy as well. So yeah, we've got a big task on our hands. Given the scale of uh, the impact that you described, uh, what's your office doing to try to help? We're always trying to work out where is the best kind of use of our energies, our resources, our funding, our advocacy. And one of the things we set up a few years ago at City Hall was a culture at risk office, which I like to refer to as the bat phone. So it's a number that people can call if they are struggling. And usually it tends to be grassroots music organizations, artist studios, small venues, LGBT plus clubs, you know, that kind of fragile grassroots infrastructure in big cities who are, you know, developing fast where land values are high. And we already had this office that we were trialing that was going really well. And so when COVID hit, we, we almost immediately supersized it. We actually borrowed members of staff from other teams. And just to give you a sense of it, in, in the last kind of few years when we've been running it, on average, we've had about 30 emergency cases over a three to four month period. And since COVID hit three to four months ago, we've got 580 cases. So it's really become the front line of support for culture in the city. It's major institutions, major galleries, the big iconic institutions that are needing help as well as the grassroots. Culture has really played an important role in creativity in supporting community connections and supporting people's mental health. Culture is a kind of fundamental human right and we need to rebuild cities that can thrive and not just survive and culture is really important in that. 
The pandemic has upended the college application process and College Point, a free virtual advising program for high-achieving, low-income high school students, is uniquely poised to help. Janiel Reynolds, who works on the education team at Bloomberg Philanthropies, sits down with Rachel McGuire, a College Point advisor, and Logan Balfance, a recent College Point alum, who is now a freshman at the University of Notre Dame for Episode 83. Virtual advising, does it work? To share tips for students applying to college during the pandemic. One of the things that I loved about the College Point Initiative is their mission of making higher education more accessible and equitable to students who traditionally might not have had a strong support system when it came time to completing their college applications. Sometimes my students are like, oh my God, I didn't think this was possible. I got a match! I got a match! I had clear intentions of why I wanted to go to college, of why I wanted to go to Notre Dame specifically. So I went to the website, signed up, and you know, got matched with Rachel, and it's been history ever since. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm wondering whether you have any parting words of advice for high school seniors who are entering the college application season right now during some very uncertain times and who might be grappling with whether to stay in state or go out of state to pursue that dream school or not. What would you advise those students as a college advisor, Rachel? And what would your advice be, Logan, as someone who's just gone through the advising process and is now embarking on your college journey? Yeah, that's really hard, especially because there are a lot of uncertainties with what's going to happen to colleges this year. Will funding levels remain the same? So I think it's more important than ever to apply to a balanced list of schools. And what I mean when I say that is apply to a good mix of either in-state, out-of-state schools and public and private schools. So really make sure that you get all your in-state public schools where you can qualify for in-state tuition and out-of-state private schools that perhaps meet a lot of need-based aid just because I think that the pandemic is going to affect different colleges in different ways. And so it's hard to tell now. So if you give yourself more options now, hopefully you'll have better choices come spring. On top of that, great advice, Rachel, by the way. But on top of that, I think just always, like don't let the circumstances that we're in right now kind of bring you down or bring your mood down. For me, using it as a motivation to just, you know, continuously develop and you know, get better and to try even harder, which is, is what kind of really pushed me through the end of high school and got me a good start, uh, solid foundation going into college. So definitely don't think, oh, I shouldn't pursue this because my chances are less an hour because you know this is so overwhelming. Definitely try your hardest. It's not gonna be easy, but I can tell you that it'll definitely be worth it. Through our work with the Sierra Club on the Beyond Coal campaign, we've helped retire 60% of domestic coal plants and are on track to retire 100% of the nation's coal plants by 2030. In episode 87, Moving America Beyond Coal, Antha Williams, Global Head of Climate and Environment Programs at Bloomberg Philanthropies, sits down with Marianne Hitt, the Sierra Club's National Director of Campaigns, and Reverend Yearwood, the President and CEO of Hip Hop Caucus, to discuss the impact of retiring coal plants and transforming to clean energy. The U.S. Beyond Coal campaign just announced a big landmark that the campaign has retired 60% of all the coal-fired power plants in America. Nothing 
And I do mean nothing can stop us from accomplishing our goal of canceling every, and I do mean every, single coal plant in this world. This, this plan, this milestone also means life and death. 68% of people of color, particularly black people, live near coal-fired power plants. So the more that these coal-fired power plants close, the more that our children can breathe. We are now seeing a whole new generation who is not only fighting for equality, but they're fighting for existence. I'm optimistic that not only is that inspiring folks around the world to pick up the charge of moving beyond coal, but it's also hopefully emboldening us all to take on all of the fossil fuels that are causing the climate crisis with more determination and realizing that we are the architects of our energy future and not the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, one of the things we learned in this campaign is that our movement tends to create the pool with just the deep end, where we have the, the eight-foot board and people are going off, diving in, but we forget that the pool has a deep end on one side, but also the shallow end for those babies still in diapers. But it's all the same pool. And if we can create a, an environment which everybody is in the same environment, in the same water, in the same pool, and they all and they all feel the same excitement, then we're not cutting off. Because again, we have to get those folks at the one end of the pool who are coming in not to be intimidated of the diving board. As Rev said, the people coming into the shallow end of the pool who suddenly have somehow connected the dots in their head about climate change and fossil fuels and pollution and want to do something and don't know where to start. They're just putting their, their toes in the water. And when I think about what is ahead, I think about the power of this new generation of activists. I think they are so much more sophisticated than I was when I was in my 20s, whether it's their political work or their storytelling work and the way that they are breaking through uh, on social media uh, or their intersectional analysis of climate change and racial justice. Having had a president for four years who has promised to bring back coal and utterly failed and completely left people behind, Imagine if we had a president who said, look, we understand that we're moving beyond coal, but we're, we're going to take care of everybody. We're going to make sure everybody's part of this new economy, and we're going to put the resources behind it to make it happen. That's the kind of leadership that we need right now. I'm 100% with Marianne that we need somebody who understands the science and, and understands how, what we do for climate. But I think that we, we've seen that we can move things forward. But again, that goes into a, a lot of things we've done well. We, we've had different leadership styles. Our indigenous community has been leading on, on many fronts on these fights. Our communities and urban communities, folks from rural areas, shout out to Jane Cleave out there in Bowdoin, Nebraska, and many others like that who've been in the heartland. So this is a pivotal moment. 2020 is a year of truth. We're doing everything through our campaign to make it happen. Follow the Data will be on hiatus for the next two weeks during the holidays. In the meantime, here are podcasts our team is listening to right now. Public Health on Call is a podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, where experts help us understand today's public health issues and what it means for tomorrow. On Big Tobacco Messed with the Wrong Moms, a podcast by PAVE, Parents Against Vaping E-Cigarettes, Hosts Meredith Berkman and Dorian Furman sit down with public health experts to discuss the youth vaping epidemic 
break down the latest news, and share resources for quitting. No Place Like Home gets to the heart of climate change through personal stories. It's hosted by Marianne Hitt, the Sierra Club's National Director of Campaigns, and climate activist Anna Jane Joyner. Dr. Leah Stokes and Dr. Katherine Wilkinson host A Matter of Degrees, a podcast for the climate curious about the powerful forces behind climate change and the tools we have to fix it. And lastly, the Serpentine podcast brings together artists, writers, and thinkers to explore questions around ecology, technology, and equity. If you haven't already, please be sure to subscribe to follow the data. You can keep up with Bloomberg Philanthropies by following us on social media at Bloomberg.org. This episode was created by Devin Alessio, Ivy Lee, Amy June, Bibi Nunez, and Lauren Nolan. As our founder, Mike Bloomberg, says, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. So until next time, keep following the data. I'm Catherine Oliver. Thanks for listening.